this morning, I want you to go with me by an eye of faith to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's sometime around the year 30 A.D. And there on the seashore that day, I want you to see a young man. He's physically, mentally, and spiritually fit. He's standing there on the sands of Galilee's shore as the morning sun illuminates his face. And as this young man talks about God, there's a light that shines from within. And there's a strange assortment of folk that are gathered around there. They're listening to His every word and hanging on to everything that He has to say. There are fishermen there, tax collectors, peasants, villagers, listening to what He says. Not long after this, He calls some of them to follow Him. To some of the fishermen, He says, come follow Me. And I'll make you fishers of men. For the most part, these were uneducated people. They were people of no social or political prominence whatsoever. Their only qualification was that in their hearts, they were open to a new truth. And when this charming and gifted young man called to them... They did not hesitate because the life that he was living was enticing to them. The words that he spoke opened up new horizons for them. I want you to think about that. Can you imagine how utterly intoxicating those early days with Jesus must have been? Crowds gathered around Jesus wherever He went. Sick folks were made well. Darkened hearts saw the light. Sin-bound slaves found freedom. And He was even able to raise the dead. It's a wonderful experience. But tragically, the shadows slowly began to fall across this bright scene. And the darkness gradually deepened. And His enemies planned and plotted His death. And no doubt for a time, His followers must have felt that someone with this kind of power could never be taken. With the power that He had to heal the sick and the power that He had to raise the dead... There's no way he was going to allow himself to be put to death. And so they had no fears for his safety. After all, all, I mean, this man could prevail over his enemies. And how could his enemies ever prevail over someone that had the power that Jesus had? And then they began to realize something they began to realize that Jesus would allow Himself to be taken. And so the darkest hour in the history of our world finally came to pass. Jesus, 
the Son of God, was put to death. But death couldn't hold Jesus. And the grave could not conquer Jesus. And Jesus came forth victorious over death and the grave. And that was when His frightened disciples came out of their hiding places. And suddenly they felt that old glow again. And they felt that old kindling of the mind and the heart. And they went out. They went out to tell a skeptical world news that it could not refute then. News that a skeptical world cannot refute even today in 2018. So Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, We preach Christ crucified. The power of God. He would write in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why not, Paul? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The sad part is, over the years of our lives, hearing Bible stories read to us perhaps when we were children, Studying Bible stories in Sunday school. Taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Over the years, familiarity has dulled our mind to the concept of a crucified Christ being the power of God. When you think of power, What comes to your mind? Do you think maybe of one of those great cruise liners, one of those great ocean ships plowing through the lanes of the sea? Or do you think of the power of a blast of dynamite as it digs tunnels through the rocks for highways and train tracks? Or do you think perhaps of a jet streaking across the sky faster than the speed of sound? A rocket taking a journey into outer space? Or the authority of kings and presidents in the reign of law? Think about this. Who in their right mind would look to a, the body of a defeated and dying man in the dark as power? But folks, that so-called defeated man was God. Death had no dominion over Him. And the defeated Jesus became the risen Christ. The Jesus worshipped and adored throughout the whole world. Folks, we need to recover the important truth of the power of Jesus Christ. All too often, artists have painted to us a picture of Christ as anything but a powerful man. Over the years, the brush of the artist has, for the most part, pictured to us Jesus as an anemic, 
effeminate individual in a very weak and unworthy sense of the word. And so much has been made of the gentleness and the meekness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, we've had an overdose over the years of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's time for us to see the Christ of the Gospels. Jesus the carpenter, suntanned, bronzed, and fearless. We need to see the rippling muscles of the young carpenter as he overturned the tables of the money changers that day in the temple. We need to hear his booming voice as he says, It's written, My Father's house will be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. We need to see the Jesus of power. The Son of God, who was with God in the very beginning. The Jesus that John wrote about when he said the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's in John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I want you to picture something this morning. I want you to picture the Apostle Paul. He's writing to an obscure little community in the Lycus Valley in ancient Phrygia. It would be a part of what is modern day Turkey. And to that little community, Paul would say that by Jesus all things consist. Here's actually what he wrote in Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 17. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. Now listen to it. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. That word consist in that passage, folks, it actually means in Jesus all things hold together. Now I want you to think about what a preposterous idea this is. By Jesus all things hold together. Was this man not a carpenter of Nazareth? Doesn't he fit into a purely human picture? Didn't he have brothers and sisters? Wasn't he put to death by the Roman officials like a common criminal? Can you imagine those people in that little community say, Paul, what on earth are you talking about? And then can you hear the great apostle remind them that that's only the human side of Jesus. The death of Jesus displays His power. Because the death of Jesus shows us the power of suffering love. And you might ask the question, why would Jesus, 
the man who could heal the sick and raise the dead and make the lame to walk. Why would Jesus with His power allow Himself to be put to death? Why would Jesus allow a handful of Jews to take His life? Couldn't He have asserted His power and overthrown His enemies? Absolutely. Just like that. One word from Jesus and Pilate could have been insane. One gesture from the mighty hand of Jesus and Herod's rule would have ended. He told him he could pray to the Father and he would have more than twelve legions of angels come to his defense. But folks, when we allow ourselves to think that way, we're forgetting the true function of power. Power is the ability to accomplish a purpose. Power is the ability to achieve a desired goal. The purpose of God was the redemption of the world. The purpose of God was to buy back, to redeem human lives from the grip and the bondage of sin. And God wasn't going to do that by force. God wanted lost man and lost woman to willingly accept the bondage of love. What good would it have done to drive Pilate insane? What would it have accomplished to end the proud reign of Herod? What would have been accomplished by putting the Roman armies to flight with angels? All of that could have been called power, and all of that could have been done, but it wouldn't have redeemed anyone. It wouldn't have saved anyone. Write this down. It's on the final exam. The relevant power in the scheme of redemption is the suffering love of Jesus. It's the power of love that goes on loving and loving and loving. Love that suffers and never seeks vengeance and never seeks reprisal. That's the love that wins the allegiance of men and women. And that's the love that can't fail to win in the end, I'm reminded of a story that I read. Some of you perhaps have heard it. It was a true story. It was the story of a problem child. A young boy. It wasn't either one of my boys. But like all parents, this boy's parents wanted him to be a good boy. And nothing they could think of doing prevented this boy from being exceedingly bad. He was kept in at school. They withheld his allowance. He was banished to his bedroom for time out. His favorite desserts were taken away from him. He was giving whipping after whipping. And he still remained a problem child. 
He actually seemed hardened by the very treatment that was meant to soften him. It happened that one summer afternoon, a very interesting incident took place. This little boy had one beloved pet, a little rough-haired dog. And on that hot summer afternoon, this boy was trying to teach his little dog a trick. And the little dog seemed very tired, and the boy was very impatient. And the little dog failed to understand what his young master was trying to get him to do. And the boy kicked that little rough-haired dog in the mouth and made its mouth bleed. And with big, brown, trusting eyes, the dog looked up at his little master puzzled and bewildered. And then very painfully, because the boy had hurt the little dog's shoulder also, the dog struggled onto his hind legs and put up its paws, trying so hard to learn the trick the boy wanted him to do. And as the boy came near, the dog put out his blood-stained tongue and tried to lick his little master's hand. And that's when this boy broke down. And eyes blinded with tears, he ran running to his mother. And he said, Mommy, I've done an awful thing. Restrictions never made him cry. Confinement to his room never brought tears to his eyes. Whippings never broke him. But suffering love broke his heart. That, folks, is only the suffering love of a little rough-haired dog. The news that we proclaim is the suffering love of God. And that's why I want to be able with Paul to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want to be able to stand behind the cross of Christ and proclaim a suffering Savior. The cross is the symbol of the greatest energy the universe has ever known. It's the symbol of divine love. A love that suffers, but never bullies. The love of Jesus knocks. But it never breaks the door down. The love that goes on loving until there's nothing for us to do but to surrender to that love. A love that's overwhelming, never tiring, and utterly convincing. Sometimes, folks in our day and time, Make serving Jesus just way too complicated. And the longer I live, the more I'm persuaded that to some people, Christianity must seem to be a very complicated thing. Because there's so many different groups and so many different creeds and there's so many different theologies. 
But folks, what men have done over the years is they've taken something pure and simple and made it complicated. Are you listening? I'm very sincere when I say I can I believe that I can put the gospel into just six words. And here they are. Jesus offers his friendship to you. It was that friendship that changed the lives of the men who followed him when he called them. And today Jesus is essentially the same. And He still calls us to follow Him. He calls us to surrender our pride and our selfishness to live His way of life. Do you not remember that night that Jesus ate the Passover with the apostles? They're in Jerusalem and they're in the upper room. And Jesus taught them a lesson in humility that night by washing their feet. And then Jesus began to teach them even further. John records it for us in John 15, verses 13 through 15. Jesus tells them, Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. Then, Jesus makes this key statement. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. And he goes on and he tells them that from this point forward, they're no longer servants, but friends. But their relationship with Jesus began with friendship. The same Jesus who called Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and all the others, He calls us. He called them to follow Him, to be His friends. And He makes that same appeal to us, to be His friends. And being His friends means we're obedient to His will. He said in John, we're His friends if we do whatever He commands us to do. Following Him. Being redeemed means obeying His terms of pardon. It means repenting of everything that's sin in our life. It means confessing His name. It means submitting ourselves to being buried in the waters of baptism for the washing away of past sins. It also involves something else. It involves a life of faithfulness. Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Are you a friend of Jesus this morning? Can you call Jesus your friend because you've done what He commands you to do and you're living His kind of life? If you haven't done what Jesus wants you to do or if you're not living Jesus' kind of life and you need to make changes, now's the opportunity to do that. He extends His invitation as we stand while we sing.